Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque podcast, your friendly history specials. Today is St. David's Day, and as our guest, we have Nathan Amin, and we're going to talk to him about one of the most famous sons of Wales, Henry VII, as well as his Welsh origins, his Beaufort origins, and how he ended up on the throne of England. Let's start at the very beginning, preconception of Henry VII. Who are the Beauforts and the Tudors, and why was the marriage between Margaret and Edmund arranged? Very good question. Let me go through my mental memory. Who were the Tudors, first of all? Well, I mean, just for convenience's sake, let's just assume that the family I'm about to speak about were always known as the Tudors. In Wales, they did use patronymics, so normally father and son, or the son carry the father's name. So, you know, technically, the first Tudor that most people are aware of is Owen Tudor, but his name would have been in Welsh, Owain ap Meredith ap Tudor, which is Owen, son of uh, Meredith, son of Tudor, uh, and so on. So we like to just use the term Welsh Tudor, even though it's historically incorrect, just because it, it makes it easier to know who we're speaking about. So with that in mind, the Welsh Tudors that I write about, I often start the family with a guy called Ednafet Vachan who was born in around 1170. Now, he was one of the most powerful men in North Wales during his lifetime. North Wales during his life was independent. It was known as the Kingdom of Gwynedd. And he was essentially the the prime minister, the leading chief minister to the Welsh princes. So So his family that he, you know, effectively started were powerful, influential power brokers, in North Wales. Now, because of his success, he married a South Welsh princess called Gwenllian. And this is very important for future generations of their family because Gwenllian was the daughter of a South Welsh king, the Lord Rhys, and he was able to claim descent from all of these ancient and revered Welsh kings and princes, princes from, you know, what we used to call the Dark Ages, now we would call the early modern era. Kings such as Howell Var, Rodri Maur, great ancient kings. And these would be kings in the future that a certain Henry Tudor would also be able to claim descent from. Effectively, the original kings of this of part of this island before the Saxons, before the Normans, before the Plantagenets. So that's very important how Ednafet Vachan was able to marry Princess Gwenchian. And they created a strong lineage of powerful Welshmen that were at the forefront of Welsh politics throughout the 1200s, the 1300s, and into the 1400s. Again, for convenience sake, the Welsh Tudors. Subject of my next book, everybody buy it. It's really fun. It's interesting. It's a story of the Welsh Tudors, a story of the Tudors, in fact, but not as you guys would all know it. So it's definitely worth exploring that in a lot more detail, probably beyond the remit of, of the podcast. But, but suffice to say, in the year 1400, rebellion breaks out in Wales. And this is a, a war of independence led by a guy called Owain Glyndwr. And Owain, is, he claims himself to be the Prince of Wales. His first cousins are the Tudor family. So together, the Tudors and Owain Glyndwr try and free Wales from the English crown. Now, they fail, and Wales is effectively subject to 
some very tough laws imposed on them by the English. There's no longer a route for Welshmen to make their way in the world because of these laws. So a young boy leaves Wales and effectively becomes an economic migrant, if you will, a refugee. He comes to England, and that is who we know as Owen Tudor. Now, we don't know how for definite, but Owen Tudor somehow meets the Dowager Queen of England, Catherine of Valois. She is the widow of Henry V. She's the mother of the baby Henry VI. Owen somehow meets her, they fall in love, and they secretly marry. You know, that, that's what we call Welsh charm, that is. Uh, a, low, a lowly Welsh squire able to make a, a Queen of England fall in love with, with him. But they do marry in secret, and they do have a number of children. The three children we know for definite that they have, one was called Edmund Tudor, one was called Jasper Tudor, and one was called Owen Tudor after his father. Now, the youngest boy, Owen Tudor, seems to have been handed over into the church to be raised. But Edmund and Jasper, they grow up as the half-brothers of King Henry VI. So they are not of English blood themselves, but they are of Welsh royal and French royal blood. And they become quite important allies to Henry VI during the 1450s. Now, this is a period when there's major conflict happening in England. War is threatening to break out between the houses of York and Lancaster. And it seems that Henry VI wants his little brothers around to help him out. He gives them noble titles. He creates Edmund Tudor, the Earl of Richmond. He creates Jasper Tudor, the Earl of Pembroke. That's not bad for a couple of children who only two generations ago were Welsh rebels. You know, they very much have gone quickly from being Welsh rebels to part of the English royal family. Now, in order to show up his support, Henry VI also gives the Tudor brothers the wardship of one of his cousins, a cousin of English royal blood, and that is young Margaret Beaufort. Edmund, who is 26 years old at this point, in fact takes Margaret as his wife when she's just 12 years old. This is unpalatable, really, even by the standards of the day. Certainly children are married all the time, but Edmund takes it a step further and actually impregnates young Margaret. The logic is clear from a very greedy and selfish point of view. As soon as Margaret has his child, and she's a very rich royal heiress, as soon as she has Edmund's child, Edmund forever holds those lands. He is effectively... Rich, richer beyond his wildest dreams. So there's an element of very devious self-interest to play here in rushing through this marriage and impregnating young Margaret. Margaret does give birth in Pembroke Castle to a baby called Henry on the 28th of January, 1457, but the father is not around to see his child be born. He dies three months earlier in Carmarthen Castle. Now, what's happening during this period is the houses of York and Lancaster have started to go to war, and Edmund Tudor is sent to South Wales to hold South Wales for the House of Lancaster, and he's a perfect choice. He is of Welsh descent. The Welsh 
they love this. They love the fact that the Tudor family are back and they're powerful. So they flock to the cause and Edmund Tudor is successful. But a certain Richard of York does not like the fact that West Wales is now being held by the Tudors for Lancaster. He sends in some of his men. Edmund Tudor is locked up in Carmarthen Castle and then suddenly he's dead. Now, history has always told us Edmund Tudor died by plague, but there's actually no contemporary evidence of that being the case. I would speculate he was perhaps actually put to death on orders of the House of York, and there's quite a few good reasons to believe that. One is the fact that these men who arrested Edmund Tudor were later punished and accused of having a part in creating these plots in South Wales. So that's a very good reason that they to believe that they were involved in a you know a dastardly deed. Mm. Secondly, what well, Edmund Tudor has now married Margaret Beaufort, has got her pregnant, that makes the Tudors not just a political threat to the House of York, who perhaps might want the Crown of England, it makes them a dynastic threat as well. Edmund Tudor is perhaps starting to get ideas above his station. And Richard of York wants that nipped in the bud straight away. During this period in question, there is still not an heir to the House of Lancaster. Henry VI has not yet had his son. The heir could be anyone. Could it be the Beauforts? Could it be Richard of York? Could it now be this new half Beaufort, half Tudor child? So that there's reasons to believe that that possibly could have influenced Edmund Tudor's death. And finally, were people actually disgusted at him getting a 12-year-old child pregnant? Could it have been some sort of retribution taking place to get him out of the picture? We're not going to know at this distance, but either way, the fact is that in January 1457, there is a child now born in Pembroke Castle, West Wales, and he is able, through this complicated family background, to be part English royal, part French royal and part Welsh royal. This gives young Henry Tudor quite a lofty bloodline. It Mm. doesn't make him in any way, shape or form anywhere near becoming King of England. There were plenty more people with far greater claims to the throne than Henry Tudor, but it does put in him something which perhaps heralds the boy to come, the man to come, the king to come. You know, this is very a very interesting background, an unusual background that he has compared to his peers. So he's great and he is connected to the Scottish royal family, isn't he? Because his great aunt married James I. Yeah, so that would have been Joan Beaufort, mm-hmm. who herself is actually a very interesting uh, <laughs> yeah. character. I, I always say that people often consider the first Beaufort king of England to be Henry VII. You know, very famously, his mother is Margaret Beaufort. But the first Beaufort descended kings of England were actually Edward IV of the House of York, Richard III of the House of York. They were descended from Beauforts. But the first king to be descended from the Beauforts on these islands, uh, yeah, James II of Scotland, whose father was James I, and whose mother was Joan Beaufort. Fascinating story. She was there when her husband got assassinated, and she apparently also got 
perhaps stabbed a few times. I mean, Scottish history is not my forte, but having <laughs> briefly having briefly had to look at the life of Joan Beaufort, I very quickly realised just how chaos it was <laughs> to be called James and be King of Scotland during the 15th century. Yeah. Do you know James I's brother? So James I wasn't supposed to be king. His brother, David, was supposed to be king, and he was kept in a palace and possibly off by his uncle. So instead of princes in the tower, he was a prince in the palace, <laughs> which I think is dead interesting. That is very interesting. I do know that during this period, there were also two young boys that they called the Douglas boys. And I believe that they were wiped out. And that's actually a really interesting precedent for, I hate to bring it up, but the princes in the tower were often told that during this period, you would not kill children. Well, yeah. look to Scotland. You know, it definitely <laughs> happened Sorry. during this period. Black dinner. Yeah. yeah. Uh, James and Joan, is that the ones who got married in Southwark, if I'm not mistaken? Southwark Cathedral. And that- yes, it was. They, they got married in Southwark. You know, I'm really going to have to stretch back my memory now to my Beaufort book. I think James I was a prisoner of the English yeah. during this period. And the most powerful Englishman, the richest Englishman of this time, was a chap called Cardinal Beaufort. Well, he may not even be the cardinal at that point. I think he was still a bishop. But he was Bishop of Winchester, one of the richest men in England. And this says a lot for his haughtiness, his ambition, that he managed to put together his niece, Joan Beaufort, with a king of Scotland. And he threw a lavish celebration for them in his palace. If anyone here has been to Southern Cathedral, it's gorgeous you know it's just off london bridge in well london but if you walk along the river you do come past some remains of the bishop's palace you know we don't get much medieval remnants in london to be honest there's something that's always just appears there to people doing the walk along uh the south of the thames and it was there that this celebration of this marriage feast took place yeah right next to the golden hind it's beautiful Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In historical fiction, which I hate to bring up to you, Margaret is often portrayed as a schemer and quite power-hungry, obsessed with putting this baby on the throne. How accurate is this? Especially in Henry's younger years, how accurate is this? It's not accurate at all. It's complete and utter nonsense. It's it's rooted in misogyny for a start. Even if it was true, what's wrong with a woman having drive and ambition and trying to do exactly what all the men were doing during that period? But, oh no, how dare Margaret do that, etc. But no, there is no evidence of this. Henry, when he was born, was certainly of interesting lineage and mm. was connected to the English royal house of Lancaster. But no one was ever going to put him forward to be king. There was no need to have him put forward as king. There certainly isn't this lifelong strive and ambition of Margaret, this religious fanatic who's always dreamt of his son becoming king. The earliest we can ever say that Margaret had ambitions for his son to become king of England, Richard III was already king. Hmm. So the Tudor, the idea of the Tudors becoming kings only begins once Richard seizes the throne. I'm going to say it. Once Richard usurps the throne, that is the earliest that Margaret Beaufort has any ambitions for her son to become king. Up to that point, you know, we should we should just backtrack a little bit. When Henry is just 14 years old, he is forced into exile. 
the Wars of the Roses has happened, the House of York is victorious, and Edward IV has effectively wiped out anyone with a rival claim to his crown. Mm. Henry VI of Lancaster and his son, Prince Edward, have been killed. The Beaufort family have been wiped out in the male line. Three Beaufort men, the leaders of the family, have been killed. Henry Holland, the Duke of Exeter, who is the senior Lancastrian claimant during the 1470s, he mysteriously drowns coming back on Edward IV's ship from France. You know, he has been he has been snuffed out. That leaves just young Henry Tudor as a really distant potential problem. And so at 14 years old, he leaves Wales. His uncle Jasper Tudor takes him, and Henry spends the next 14 years in exile. Now, the Yorkists do try to get hold of him. They do repeatedly send across men with gold to try and buy him back from the Bretons. Henry's in Brittany, but he manages to live to see another day each time. Margaret is very close to the Yorkist court during the 1470s and the early 1480s. She is an honoured part of the house, uh, of, of the royal court. You know, she is on friendly terms with Elizabeth Woodville and the king, Edward IV. She spends this time trying to get her son home. Now, initially, Edward IV is reluctant to do this, and he has good reasons. He doesn't want rival claimants of any shade being around him. But by the early 1480s, he starts to relent. And again, there's good reason for this. He is the victor. The Wars of the Roses is over. He has two sons of his own. He has a burgeoning dynasty. He's enjoying himself. As we know, he enjoys himself too much because he does die in 1482 at just the age of 40. But in 1482... Before he dies, or 1483 he dies, but in 1482, Margaret finally gets Edward to agree to allow her son to come home. They have a, a pardon drafted up in which Edward says Henry Tudor can come home, he can become the Earl of Richmond, he can have all of the Beaufort family inheritance as long as he bows down. You know, if anyone's seen Game of Thrones, as long as he bends the knee to the House of York. He can come home, and Margaret thinks that she's finally won. She gets her son home. All she wants for him, the evidence is clear, is for him to be Earl of Richmond and head of the Beaufort family. Problem is, Edward IV dies. Now, we have a very interesting meeting that takes place the day before Richard III is crowned king. So Richard does what he does with the princes in the tower. He takes the throne 5th of July, 1483, he's getting crowned in the morning. He has a meeting with Margaret Beaufort. Officially, the meeting seems to be about some Beaufort family debts that she's owed by the French. You know, it, it, it's business. No one can tell me that during that meeting, the question wasn't raised by Margaret, what happened to my son? Edward IV, your brother, said he could come home. Can he come home, Richard? I believe Richard said no, which he obviously would do. He's just, he's in the midst of usurpation. He's in the midst of taking the crown. He's not going to suddenly go, yeah, bring that French, Welsh, whatever he is, lad, 
back over you. Richard said no. Margaret's left our meeting hellbent on bringing Richard down. I think that's the earliest we can say she had ambitions for her son to be king. And even then, I don't think it was then. I think her ambitions at that point truly were to have her cousin and her nephew, because, you know, royal families are very complex, the Duke of Buckingham to become King of England. He had a better claim to the throne than her son. He, in fact, had a better Beaufort claim to the throne than her son. So therefore, it doesn't make sense whatsoever that everybody in 1483, when they wanted to start rebelling against Richard III, would have picked Henry Tudor over the Duke of Buckingham. It simply doesn't make any sense. But Buckingham is an idiot. Buckingham messes up his rebellion and Buckingham gets his head chopped off in October 1483. I think that is when the whole rebellion pivots to Henry Tudor. There's nobody else left. And then sure enough, on Christmas Day 1483, Henry Tudor publicly swears to North that he will become King of England and he will marry Elizabeth of York. That's a long way of saying any idea that people have of Margaret Beaufort having a lifelong ambition to make her son King of England is nonsense. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It needs to stop being said. Same as Margaret Beaufort being the killer of the Princess of the Tower. It's stupid. It needs to stop being said. But it's not going to stop people because they once read a fiction book 15 years ago. And there's a lot of, I guess, inherent subconscious misogyny at play where how dare this woman, even if she did plan it all, so what? Good for her. She won. (laughs) Absolutely. Just while we're on the subject, how do you feel about fiction, like historical fiction? How do you think that historical fiction writers have a, a duty to give the facts or do you think they can go literally Game of Thrones and go wild, have dragons and whatever? I mean, it's complex. Uh, There's different answers to it. I certainly think fiction has its place because, Mm. I mean, most people who read my books would have got interested through fiction. I Mm. got interested through fiction. So it definitely needs to exist as a gateway. But there's fiction done well and there's fiction done bad. Uh, Good fiction, uh, for example, Dan Jones, he's recently written Essex Dogs. He knows his subject inside out. And very cleverly, he has picked characters that are based in real life. Now, he's had a bit of a fun with, you know, certain characters such as Prince Edward, the Black Prince. But at the back of the book, he has justified his reasons for going down this way. He's listed books. He's mentioned what is and isn't true. He's mentioned what he's taken as artistic license. He's also issued a lengthy reading list. Right, if you do want to read the real story so far as we know it, read these books. That's perfect. That is gateway signposting people to pick up the real history. Then you get other fiction writers. Now, I don't read a lot of fiction, truth be told. I'm too busy writing my own books. But I do know you do get other fiction writers who will write their story and then repeatedly try and justify their choices. Margaret Beaufort murdered her her brother-in-law, Jasper Tudor, or Henry VII raped Elizabeth of York. Well, you weren't there. You can't say that didn't happen. That's dangerous. That's ridiculous. Mm. And especially when you have that much influence, I think you do need to be careful. So, so yeah, I I think you probably do have to have a bit of a a judgment and a bit of a responsibility when you're using real people and real figures. I mean, Facebook's a disaster zone 
for entering historical groups because 90 percent of people there have their opinions based on what they've read in fiction we obviously live in a weird culture what world where everyone's got to double down regardless if you tell someone you're wrong they're going to come back at you twice as hard because that's just society at the moment so it, it is it is just an absolute nightmare trying to unpick and it's not even worth unpicking you know yeah. I, I, I will occasionally get involved in a few social media things but i know so many historians who aren't even on social media and certainly wouldn't dream of engaging because it's not worth the effort, the hassle. And it just means a lot of these untruths then end up perpetuating themselves. So, you know, it's a perfect mix at the moment of fiction mixing with social media and creating an absolute, well, like I said, disaster zone. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes people have this tunnel vision, like they can't, what's it confirmation bias? They can't see anything that doesn't align with what they think and they don't want to see brand new information or maybe change their mind. Because me and Natalie Nat had lots and lots and lots of discussions about Richard III. We're on opposite sides, but we're always open to new information. And when that new documentary came out that you were involved in, we watched it. She had her opinions, I had my opinions. I changed my mind about some things, but I didn't about others. And Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, I don't know I don't know the quote for definite off the top of my head, but it'll be something like, I don't know, what, uh, intelligence is knowing something, but wisdom is knowing that you don't know anything. Yeah. There's loads yeah. of famous quotes yeah. Yeah. And, and just to give you an example of that, myself and Martha Lewis, you know, chairman of the Richard Third Society, best Ricardian author there has been, mm-hmm. we met each other, what, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago. And we were both very basic. He was, Richard was good. I was like, Henry's awesome. It was such <laughs> basic, you know, we were on complete opposite sides of this divide. We didn't really know much. We just had these basic ideas. The more we've got to know, we have come, in, you know, we are right up opposite each other now. We're very close to agreeing, but there's just some basic fundamentals that we don't agree on. But yeah. the more that we're learning, and I'm learning, I'm, I'm, I'm still reading, you know, theses on Henry the Seventh today. Um, there's stuff I just simply don't know. I don't even know one percent of Henry the Seventh. You're never going to know everything. And the no. more that you're learning, the more you're just aware of your own uncertainty with everything. Um, I think we are able to justify our feelings on certain historical figures. We can issue examples of why we believe that way. That's what mm. book writing is. You know, it's, it's writing your book and justifying every paragraph of why you've come to believe that that feeling. But give me and Matt Lewis the same source based on our own life experiences, based on our wider reading of a subject, based on our bias, we will come to different views but the point is the more you learn the more you're aware of that and people who dig in on any subject and double down they don't know what they're talking about or they wouldn't they wouldn't assume that stance they would assume that they know a bit about the subject that's given them the authority to make a point but they'll also then understand they haven't really got a clue because no one's ever going to become an expert or complete the knowledge of any subject in the world you know that that simply isn't the Mm. case yeah especially when it comes to history because there is so much we will never know about a lot of history there there's only so much we can tell we couldn't possibly put all these words into margaret's mind or mouth or anything else we couldn't possibly do that we'll never know certain things 
I'll give you an example I often use. We've got some basic chronicles, some payment records, mm. some ambassador thoughts about, let's say, Henry VII. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even a king, he's going to be fairly well documented. Once you start to go down to the earls and the gentleman, your ever-dwindling sources, but we're trying to build up a picture of somebody, and the equivalent I give of the modern day of that is if somebody in a hundred years from now only had one day's access to my Facebook, mm. right? So over 15, 20 years, whatever it is, I've been on Facebook, I've posted a lot of nonsense. I've posted things that I'm angry. I've posted things that I'm sad. I've posted things that I'm enjoying. I've posted things that I'm drunk. It is just a wide range of human feelings, human thoughts, etc. If you give someone in the future just one day's access, the only picture they're going to build up for me is whatever I was on about that day. Mm. It could just be a cat. It could be a cat meme. I might think this guy's an absolutely insane person. That's it fine. Really, we, we like cats. Be, Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> we would love you more. But <laughs> what if I'm doing a very sarcastic political point that's against what I actually believe in, mm. but it's almost for satire reasons for people who know me? And then that you know, it, it's it's crazy that we're trying to build up these pictures of these people. That's all we can go on. But we have to accept that there's many times where we just have to say, "I don't know." And that's okay. Yeah. It's not a lack of authority. It's not admitting that you're wrong or you're stupid. It's just you don't, you can't possibly know. You kind of told us a little bit about the, the Beauforts. So before Henry gets to a certain age, he's not in line at all. I mean, he's way, way down. Can you tell us about the, the Beauforts that were around and who might have been a threat to the Yorkist claim? In 1450, there's definitely a political issue taking place between Richard of York and Edmund Beaufort, who's the Duke of Somerset. These men, for various reasons, don't like each other. They are political opponents. Only one person can be the chief advisor, really, to Henry VI. Now, Richard of York is a distant cousin to Henry VI. He has an impeccable royal lineage, you know, directly descended in the male line from Edward III. In fact, in his female line, he has a better claim to the throne than the King Henry VI. So Richard of York is a very powerful and proud man who believes that he probably should be king. He probably definitely should be next in line to the throne because at this time, Henry VI doesn't have, uh, doesn't have any children. Edmund Beaufort is descended from the Beauforts. He himself is also descended in the male line from Edward III, but he is the cousin of Henry VI. So he is closer in blood to Henry VI because he is also of the House of Lancaster. So Henry VI and Edmund Beaufort are very tight. And Edmund Beaufort is, in fact, being raised to be the man. Richard of York doesn't like this. Richard of York becomes a populist. He becomes a reformer. And he is set on trying to have Edmund Beaufort destroyed. Now, what, what's interesting is that Richard of York spends the next five years trying to politically destroy Edmund Beaufort, and he nearly succeeds. But by 1455, Henry VI has been ill twice, and in both times, Richard of York has been made protector, and he's had Edmund Beaufort put in prison. The problem is, Henry VI keeps on recovering, and Richard of York is back, you know, pushed out to the sidelines. 
1455, in May 1455, Richard of York has had enough. He found himself in New Friends, the Neville family, father and son, Earls of Warwick and Earls of Salisbury, and they attack the royal caravan at St Albans. This is considered the first battle of the Wars of the Roses. It's not really a battle. It's an assassination. It's a mob hit. They've gone straight in, the Yorkists, to take out their leading opponents. The Nevilles kill Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, their northern competitor. Richard of York's side murder Edmund Beaufort. They wipe him out. And this initiates a 30-year feud between the Houses of York and the Houses of Beaufort. People always bring up the Houses of the Wars, the Roses, York and Lancaster. It's York versus Beaufort. This is the feud that drives the Beaufort family through. That day, at St Albans, watching his father get murdered, was a 19-year-old called Henry Beaufort. Now, Henry Beaufort becomes the new Duke of Somerset, and he goes on one. And rightfully so, in my opinion. When you put yourself in his shoes, he's seen his father get murdered unjustly from his viewpoint, and he engages on a 10-year war with the House of York until finally he's captured and has his head chopped off. He has two younger brothers, uh, Edmund and John, who spend some of this time abroad in exile, but they come back with the House of Lancaster in 1471 to continue to take up the Beaufort family arms to to assume the you know the side of Lancaster and try and get rid of the Yorkists once and for all. They reach Tewkesbury in 1471, and this is the great battle that finally wins the Wars of the Roses at this point, of course, to for the House of York. Now Edmund Beaufort, John we think was killed in a fight in, but Edmund Beaufort is still in the male line, descended from Edward III. He runs and hides in the Abbey. Now, Edward of York, uh, Edward IV of the House of York, he's not going to let this one slide. He needs to make sure the Beauforts are gone once and for all. He has his men go into the Abbey, drag Edmund Beaufort out and execute it. So the Beauforts do have quite a uh, you know, not not a very illustrious ending, really. You have a father, Edmund Beaufort, and you have his three sons all killed by the House of York. Now, Edmund Beaufort did have an older brother, that is John Beaufort. John Beaufort is the mother of a certain Margaret Beaufort. John Beaufort's life was pretty rubbish, to be honest. He had been captured as a young man in France and had spent nearly 20 years as a prisoner of the French. When he was released in the early 1440s, he comes out of he comes out of a French prison, you know, with a bit of a rocket up his bum, I'll say. <laughs> uh and and he he's rash. He's indecisive. He's incompetent. He's stupid. He wants to go straight across the channel and keep on fighting those French. They had him in prison for 20 years. He's gonna get what's his. But he's rubbish. I mean, he spent 20 years in prison. He's not a very good commander. And he suffers a series of losses. In 1443, he dies at his manor in uh, Wimborne. Now, the suggestion to this day has been that through disgrace, 
he dies by suicide. And that stems from one chronicler's account that this is what happens. So it is said he died by his own hand. This was incredibly harmful to his reputation during the day because suicide in the Catholic Church was a major sin. To this day, people repeat it as fact. But we've always got to consider the source when we're studying history. And the chronicle in question, which is the Croyland Chronicle, was actually engaged in a feud of its own with John Beaufort. John Beaufort owned the land around Crowland Abbey, and he wouldn't let them walk across his new bridge. So there might have been an element of spite in the Chronicle's account in which they simply tried to harm his reputation. As we all know famously from Richard III, none of these chronicles are necessarily unbiased. They're, they're, they're men like today writing their own biased thoughts for posterity. But the point is, John died in disgrace in 1443. His brother would die in battle in 1455. The last remaining both uh, legitimate mainline Beauforts were gone by 1471, and that leaves one Beauford descended heir, and that was Henry Tudor, but not in the mainline, which is always complicated because a lot of people believe that during this time to be king, you had to be in the mainline. You know, the son to the son to the son becomes king. Edward IV had disproved that. Edward IV had become king in 1461. He was descended in the male line from a fourth son of Edward III, but the claim of the House of York that they claimed gave them better right to the crown than the House of Lancaster was that they were descended from a second son of Edward III, which is true, but that was through a female line. So once Edward IV takes the crown through that female line, all bets are off effectively, and Henry VII, Henry Tudor, is able, down the line, to use that claim to very good effect. You really wouldn't want to be a Beaufort. Uh, not, not not, around the House of York, <laughs> definitely not. I mean, and, and, and even if we go to Bala Bosworth, Bala Bosworth is still... I mean, everyone says it's the last part of the Wars of the Roses and it's between York and Lancaster. Mm. That's not true. First of all, it's really between York and York in that... Henry Tudor's support, the reason Henry Tudor makes it to the Battle of Bosworth is because he has enough Yorkists willing to support him, providing he marries Elizabeth of York. So 1485, the Battle of Bosworth is basically a civil war within the House of York, but it's also just a wider symptom of this Beaufort versus York rivalry, which has been the golden thread throughout the entire Wars of the Roses. Okay, so this is a quick fire round. Okay. Yes, no, maybe. Had Edward IV lived longer, would the princes have made it to the crown? Yes. Was Richard right to take the throne? Yes. Did he kill the princes? Yes. Was Margaret Beaufort behind the princes' death? No. Henry VII and Elizabeth of York... Is that a great love story? Maybe. Was there a better candidate to the throne when Henry VII took him? No. And finally, if he had won, would Richard have made a good king? Maybe. 
that, that, that's quite difficult. You have to try and fit the answer that fits the best with, with, without any qualification. But yeah. <laughs> So today we have social media and everything else. We know that if anything happens to the current king, we know who William and Kate are. We know what they look like. We know what their children look like. But when Henry VII comes to the throne, does Emden know who he is? No, he was a king, probably the most unlikely king ever to rule. People didn't know who he was. You know, this is part of the element why Henry has to work hard mm. to build up this story behind himself. And he uses Welsh mythology there to make himself be the son of prophecy. Now, we know through Shakespeare's work that he was portrayed as a God-given victory and he had been sent from heaven to destroy the tyrant. That's kind of true in how he tried to spin it. You know, victory on the battlefield was God-given and divine judgment. And this was, and his victory had always been foretold, he said, or we know, through a series of Welsh prof, Welsh poems. You know, Welsh always had a thing for a messiah, the son of prophecy. Great title of a book that I may or may not be releasing in July. <laughs> um, we always had this idea of a son of prophecy. So there's a reason why Henry, first of all, is having to big up his background. But we have a fantastic quote from a foreign chronicler who knew Henry in France called Philippe de Comines. And Philippe de Comines said that when Henry became king, he was a man without power, without money, without right to the crown of England, and without any reputation but what his person and deportment obtained for him. I think that's a fascinating summary from someone who knew Henry Tudor. He became king based on his own character, his own person. You know, we often get this image of Henry apparently being a dour, boring, miser king, and Ebenezer Scrooge. He must have had some charisma to have been able to convince an army to cross the sea, march 200 miles through Wales, and fight against the King of England when it was clear that they were going to lose. There's no way Henry should have won at the Battle of Bournemouth where there's a bigger, richer, and more powerful enemy and yet he's able to hold together his army he must have had something about him as a person and this is attested to by foreign chroniclers you know many ambassadors report that henry was quite charismatic when he spoke he had a cheerful countenance when he spoke um obviously his portrait didn't do anything for him in the modern era's mind um same can be said for Margaret Beaufort. I think they both suffer from their portraiture. But people wouldn't have known him. I mean, Richard III himself actually calls him an unknown Welshman whose father I never knew. I mean, there's no reason why he would have known his father. Richard was a child when Edmund Tudor died. But it's an interesting quote. Richard is trying to denigrate Henry's suitability to be king because... Who was Henry Tudor? You know, he had been away from... He'd lived in Wales from birth to 14 years old. Then he'd lived for 14 years in Brittany and France. He arguably never enters England until his march to Bosworth to become king. It's, it's a fascinating story. It's unlike anything that we have in English history. And I like the element of Henry being this self-made king, Effectively, I mean, 
good for him taking down the the elites and the the nobles and the wealthy to then become king and take it all himself. Uh, but that might be my modern bias coming out. <laughs> Is there any evidence of what the the Welsh people thought about having this Welshman on the throne of England? Yeah. It was viewed by the... Obviously, we don't know what the common man or mm. woman on the street said. We can only go by the bards who were influential. And just like newspapers of today, they would have helped shape public opinion. The bards had long championed the Tudor family because the bards were constantly trying to persuade Welshmen or, or at least English nobles of Welsh extraction come up and fight against the Norman York, fight against the English fight against the Saxon, get them off our island and take the island back for the Welsh. That's what the bards were always trying to foment. Basically a race war. They wanted the land back for the Welsh. When the Tudors come along, before they're the kings and queens, they know their background. They know who they're descended from. So during Henry's youth, he's been championed as the great bull of Anglesey, or the Great Swallow. They use all these great animalistic terms for him, convince him to come back and take down the evil English tyrant and so on. Now, the Welsh bards had, over the centuries, had many sons of prophecies, all of whom had let them down. Mm. We had uh, Prince Coelin, the last, close to the name, the last, Owen Glyndwr, at one point, they even tried to adopt Edward IV as their son of prophecy because he did have very distant Welsh descent. Once Henry Tudor comes along, they love it. When he lands in Wales, the bards are doing their thing. Many Welsh flock to Henry's side. And Henry's not stupid. He decides to use as his badge a, a red dragon. Now, the red dragon has been a Welsh symbol since the 6th century. I've got a tattoo on my arm of the Welsh dragon. <laughs> so does everyone in Wales, you know, it, it means a lot to us, our our national symbol. Henry marches with the red dragon as his banner. He knows what he's doing. He's linking himself to these prophecies. I am the new son of prophecy. I am coming to save you Welsh people from your servitude. He even writes that in a letter before he becomes king. He writes to the Welsh, I am coming to save you when he becomes King, he's crowned in London, and this fulfills all of the Welsh prophecies that said that one day a Welshman would be crowned king in London. The Welsh bards stop. After hundreds of years, they no longer write any more prophet poems about sons of prophecy. The prophecy has been fulfilled. The island is now ours. And that's how it would have been viewed. Now we do get a lot of modern discussion about how the Tudors didn't do anything for Wales. Mm. And that's that's hugely misleading. You know, Wales is still arguably the poorest part of the UK. It's, it's quite uh, it's quite a febrile modern discussion taking place for how the Tudors bonded us even further into a system that doesn't work for us. But that's not true. In the 15th century, Wales struggled so heavily with these penal laws imposed on them by the English we were second-class citizens in our own land. There were two levels of law. There was what the English could do, and there's what the Welsh couldn't do, really. When Henry Tudor becomes king, towards the end of the reign, he starts to slowly unpick some of these laws. It's very piecemeal because of the way Wales was administered at the time. But his son, 
goes on to finish the job. And that is in 1536 and 1542, Wales is officially annexed into England. Wales becomes part of the English crown, and it still is to this very day. Now, that doesn't sound like helping Wales when you just consider it like that, but the Welsh people were finally raised to the same level as the English, and that's all they wanted, equality. So, yes, Wales didn't become this amazing independent country under the Tudors. It wasn't granted this freedom, but it was given equality. The Welsh people were given equality with the English, and the Welsh go on to thrive. Many Welsh families make it huge under Elizabeth I, for example, including the Cecils, who were a Welsh family. Cromwells were of Welsh descent. The problem was when Elizabeth dies, the bloody Scots come south and take over. And the Welsh are, are put to the side once again while the Scots get all the all the good jobs. To the Only for a while. Oh, oh, only for a while, yeah. <laughs> then they start uh, murdering us. So Yeah, and then there was the Germans' turn and, and so on. But, but certainly to the Welshmen of the day, this was all they wanted was an opportunity. And the Tudors gave them that opportunity. And I think that's very important when you put yourself in their mm. shoes, not looking back through our modern mm. eyes and trying to create a boogeyman for our current wars. Where would you say, because there's quite a lot of Welsh nationalism as there is Scottish nationalism now, where do you think in history that started? I mean, well, Welsh nationalism has always been a thing. I mean, Mm. as I mentioned, we had all of these poems taking place where they wanted to smash the English or the Norman back into into the sea. So that's always been the case. I think, yeah, it's a difficult question to answer because, I mean, I would consider myself a Welsh nationalist in that I would probably favour the concept of an independent Wales just because, well... It's not working for us now, so maybe I'll give something mm. a go. I'm uh, probably a lot less active than I would have been in my, in my younger days. Um, but where it started is very difficult to pinpoint because, I mean, even, as you will know from Scotland, the nationalist movement is so back and forth. It, it wanes, it brings in new, new blood, it turns out old blood. I mean, in Wales, for example, at the moment, we have quite... Uh, a big grassroots um, grassroots nationalist following being built up by activists such as Yes Camry, which champion independent Wales. But they are different to what you would have had during the 1980s and 1970s, which would have been very Welsh language driven independence. You know, you have various different movements within the modern nationalists trying to be a bit of a broad church to get to one one aim. Um, and obviously it means that ultimately it just continues to eat itself and there is no progress made. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I think it's just going to change. I mean, in 10 years' time, Welsh nationalism probably will look different to what it does right now because ultimately it's operating on one end goal and some people are happy to ally themselves to each other to get to that goal. Other people only want it in their own in their own guise, you know, they only want, I, I'm happy with Welsh nationalism if it's a left-wing state that we get. Other people will be happy with the more, cons- and then it all falls yeah. apart. I mean, look at Ireland during the 1920s. They got their independence and then went immediately into a civil war, which is <laughs> still got problems to the modern day. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I think the Welsh as a people have always been very patriotic. I think probably what's important here to consider is that we have an idea of what Wales is today. We all know what Wales as a country looks like. Wales as a country was created by this act that annexed them into England. Before that, we were the Welsh, but we weren't Wales. You know, there wasn't a country called Wales. We were the people, the Cymro, the Welsh. Um, all of those years where there were multiple different Welsh kingdoms, at one point there was like 10, 11 independent Welsh kingdoms, some more powerful than others, and always warring with each other. And, you, you know, if you were from Carnarvon, oh, well, Carnarvon probably wouldn't have existed back then. But I don't know, if you were from, I'm on the spot now, Chandrillo uh, or Penmanev during these periods in North Wales, you would have been. You would have had a different lord, a different king, to somebody from uh, Carmarthen. You would, you know, South Welsh people would have been part of the principality or the or the kingdom of Dehebars. North would have been part of Gwynedd. But you were the Cumbro. You were the Welsh people. You shared language. You shared religion. You shared culture. You would have recognised yourself in one another. So I think that element was always the case. The Welsh people. Obviously, today we would just consider Wales, and even then, this divide of oh, can somebody living in Wales be Welsh and vice versa, and then it all gets a bit, a bit icky. I think. <laughs> I think it's kind of a lot about the same in Scotland. It's the idea of independence is always great, and it's always something that may be a good thing because. The English people have different needs from the Scottish people and the Welsh people and the Irish people. We all have different needs and everything else. We live in different lands at the end of the day. And that would be good. But at the same time, I mean, look at Scottish history. We can't stop arguing with each other. <laughs> like... it, 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 it's, it's very interesting because like, up until very recently, I think in Wales, there was always... I mean, if you look again, I'm not I'm not an expert on the history of the SNP or Plaid Cymru, and I have voted Plaid Cymru multiple times in, in my life. Mm. But I believe that they started off very right wing parties. If you go back to the 1930s, 1940s, they were very right wing, and they morphed in the 1990s or whatever to become left wing nationalists, uh, which I was always told is an odd phrase. But I said, you know, Plaid Cymru when I was younger, they had very left-wing policies that I personally supported and I was happy to go yeah. along and vote for them. The, the dream always was, was to look at Scotland and how Scotland and SNP had become essentially civic nationalists. You know, you, again, I don't know whether it's right or wrong, but the, the inference was that you were all in for Scotland, regardless of your background, gender, uh, race, you were just Scottish, you want to be Scottish. In Wales, it's just a bit more complex because we've got the language issue in that, mm. you know, I, I know obviously you do have language in Ireland and Scotland and so on, but Welsh language, it was very rooted to who was the real Welsh and who wasn't the real Welsh. And that is starting to get unpicked, but there's still a lot of... It's a very divisive issue in Wales, this, this Welsh language, where, you know, I've seen mm. a Cardiff who doesn't speak Welsh at all, but if uh, those themselves as being Welsh... Then you'll have someone from Carmarthen who speaks Welsh and doesn't consider someone who doesn't speak Welsh to be Welsh. Then you'll have the English-only speaking Welsh person who then doesn't agree that someone born outside Wales who has moved to Wales. They can't. It's just everyone competing over who's the Welsh and who's not the Welsh, and it's just it, it, it it's it's absurd to me. At yeah. least. I mean, if you're in, you're in. You know, 
and I say that I, I have a complex background. I'm mixed race, but I come from Welsh speaking Wales. So you know, someone from Cardiff might look at me and say, uh, "Social media, they have say that I'm not Welsh based on you know the fact I'm mixed race." But equally, there are people who I born and brought up with who would consider them Welsh because they're from Cardiff. It's so complex, and you all just end up destroying. Uh, each other with no progress, which is why there has been no progress really in any support, re- realistic term support for Welsh mm. independence since I was a child, and it never will happen in my lifetime at the moment. I believe. I mean, people in Wales that did support Welsh independence, it was normally going to be as a de facto of Scotland going, which mm. even now that seems to be quite rocky. North of the border, um, make us a make make us a federalist state and let us all <laughs> just, get just on. Let us be happy. Yeah. <laughs> just to bring the taxis down, to be honest. Yeah. At Henry's coronation, Margaret Beaufort was described as being hysterical. Was this a hysterical? So happy, my son is king, or was this hysterical? Going right, all the kings seem to be dying. I really don't want this happen to my son. It's sometimes difficult to work out because I think the phrase that Bishop John Fisher used was that she was weeping marvellously. And, you know, taken at face value, that might mean she's crying tears of joy. But historians up to now, and I'm inclined to agree with them, seem to be, you know, they would use terms perhaps a lot more authentically than we would, in that in John Fisher's time, weeping marvellously doesn't mean how we would use marvellous today, perhaps, but I think that they were tears of great despair, concern, worry. I think she was worried about what was going to become of her son. And obviously she had had reasons to to do so. He was back in England. She knew he'd he'd been away from home for so long, being threatened with being killed. And then, of course, once his reign starts, people try and kill him for the next 24 years. So it's, you know, she, she had good reason to be concerned about... His life. Hmm. How necessary was his marriage to Elizabeth of York? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people always say that Henry Henry's crown was only owed through his marriage. That's not technically true. I mean, Henry could not have married her and carried on. He was already king. You know, Parliament made him king. The problem was, in real politic terms, he only got that support from the Yorkist rebels by agreeing to marry her. If he had turned around and gone, I'm not going to marry her now, I'm going to carry on with somebody else, he would have lost that support very quickly. Uh, but, you know, there's no reason why he personally wouldn't have wanted to have married Elizabeth at that point. You know, what was he mm. going to do? Go and find another random princess that he didn't know? It was a perfect match. You know, Henry was the right man in the right place at the right time, but more importantly, he was unmarried. Uh, Elizabeth was there. She was beautiful. She was an English princess. The fact that they got on so well, and clearly it did grow into what was what we would consider a love match, shows he had two parties willing to come forward and grow together. Um but I think he had to marry her just for real politic terms, if not technically or legally, he had to marry her. You know, he married her because he wanted to. It's often mm. it's often thrown out as a as a criticism that he married her 
because he had no choice to. Evil old Henry, he had no choice to. Why can't the opposite be equally true? He married her because he chose to marry her. He wanted to marry her. That that has equal standing in just making things up. Yeah. We, we kind of discussed it earlier, but see, the, as much as I do like historical fiction, and I like The White Queen and The White Princess, the TV shows, but see the fact that they had Henry raping her in that, I will never forgive them for that. That was the worst addition to historical fiction I think I've ever, ever came across. I mean, I haven't read the book. I watched which one came first. I watched The White Queen. White Queen. Um, I watched that. Obviously, it, it was odd to watch because it was all filmed in Belgium, which has very different, you know, scenery, scenery etc. Than yes, than England, and also the Ballad of Bosworth was filmed in the snow in a forest <laughs> between five people. That was odd, but that's obviously TV anyway. Um, yeah. I haven't read the book. But obviously, I'm aware of this whole raping mm. scene, and it's, it's just odd. I mean, it's an odd character choice. So, so what? Henry rapes her, which is obviously the worst thing you could possibly do to a woman. There's no redemption possible for a man who does that. But then, doesn't the book then go on that they do get together? They do seem to have a good relationship, and they do. It's so weird that you would make. I mean, I like wrestling. To use wrestling parlance, you're going to make such a heel out of your main character, a villain, and then mm. somehow turn them back into a baby face, which is a good person. It yeah. blows my mind. It's like, who am I to say to a woman who sold multiple millions of books and is worth millions herself? That it's bad right there, but it just seems it seems so unnecessary. Yeah. And that and that's what that, that's what that's why it gets everyone's gold up. Yeah. Like you're doing unnecessary harmful things. Uh, and even now, right? So Arthur Tudor was born roughly eight and a half months after their marriage. Now, people ask me, why, what does that mean? I go, well, more than likely, Arthur was premature for the simple reason that Henry waits and waits and waits until he gets the dispensation to marry Elizabeth. He gets a dispensation on the 16th of January. He marries her on the 18th of January. Far from this weird Ricardian accusation that Henry tried to delay his marriage, he married her as soon as he could. And the fact was, the, the wedding wasn't a big, huge, public, showy wedding. It was in some random chapel in Westminster, we have no records of it because it was all about, I need to get married to you as soon as I can. Use the piece of paper from the Pope. Let's get on with it. Now, everything rested on that child being legitimately born and having no taint whatsoever to its bloodline. So when people ask me, did Henry have sleep with Elizabeth before the marriage? It's not impossible in that if they knew the paper was coming, perhaps they went ahead with it. It's just mm. more than likely they waited for the day of the marriage. Elizabeth got pregnant quickly. Some women simply do get pregnant quite quickly. Some men, I don't know, this is all biology now beyond the scope of my knowledge. And the child was born eight and a half months later. But there's two things that keep on being brought up that are quite disturbing. There's this idea, and this always comes from women on my talks asking these questions, which I find really uncomfortable, that it was Henry trying her out to see if she could get pregnant? Uh, was he doing that before the marriage? Which also, in turn, brings up discussions of, was Henry raping her before the marriage? It's just, no, this is 
stemming from this bloody book, and people are now creating historical theories based on it. And it's just crazy. Very frustrating. I think the worst thing about it is, because don't get me wrong, I, I do like Philip Gregory. I like her books, like the other ones. What annoyed me with that, that scene as well, other than the fact that there's no basis for it and it's horrible to even imagine, it's a woman writing this and then making like a love story out of it. Like, that's the most toxic thing. Don't be putting that out there. That's not cute. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to tell them all with the brush, but Ricardians are, by and large, female. Uh, I know that from having spoken to Richard Society uh, so many times. They are, you know, they, they are females, generally of a certain age, and that's simple because the the Ricardianism, by and large, I would argue, was driven by a book in the 1950s, The Daughter of Time, and then followed up by a book in the 1970s. And it's just people who got hooked at a young age, and they're still, you know, seeing it all the way through. But it's these women who are the biggest haters of Margaret Beaufort. They are, you know, a lot of them are misogynists and they're doing it in support of a man who may very well have been a child killer. And <laughs> whether he would have been a good king or not, whether he didn't kill a prince in the tower or not, he was still a pretty brutal man of his times. And they, they're going so far out of their way now to demonise Margaret Beaufort. Demonise Henry Tudor. You know, pick, up, pick on the man who can look after himself. Why are you going down this line of demonising one of the greatest historical females we've had? And it's just bizarre. See, and equally bizarre, as you say, that, that Philip Gregory's a female writer, writing these bosonic, quite barbaric passages mm. for, what, titillation? I mean, yeah. just, just just come out to the end of the books and admit, yeah, this, this was all nonsense, but it's a good story, isn't it? Fine, you're, you're, you're a fiction writer, you're a novelist, You've told a story, but don't try and jazz it up as being potentially historically accurate because that's what she does. Mm. I mean, on, on the website, she has a section where she justifies her character choices and so on. It's just just do what Dan Jones has done. Just do what many other historical fiction writers that have gone on my bookshelves. Joanna Hickson does. You know, they, they will... This is where I'm going with this story. It's just a story. Enjoy it. Yeah. I, I want to know, Natalie, because you're the only Ricardian in the room. So. <laughs> Why are you a Ricardian? <laughs> well, certain age, what does that mean? How many? <laughs> How old should I be? <laughs> I feel like he just actually got you there. <laughs> no, I no, haven't I, read I, I, Daughter I of Time. Enough, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back to watch it. I'm going to guess he, it was Shakespeare for you. <laughs> was it Shakespeare for you that got it? It was the, the White Queen. But no, as we've learned from, well, Idan, you know, uh, Matt Lewis's arguments are very <laughs> argumentative so and convincing. Uh, yeah, but as we've discussed in the Richard episode and then Princess in the Tower, so I'm, you know, I'm open to the other side as well. And I'm a fan of Henry VII as well as Richard III. Well, that's, that's a perfect example of fiction has its place because it acts as a yeah. gateway to people to go on and, exactly. and do, their, yeah. do their, their extra research, of course. At its core, it just needs to be a bit more responsible. Yes. Yeah. Because not, not everyone is going to take them extra steps. But yes. I suppose that's why Game of Thrones was so good because it was so clearly, it was obviously derived, inspired by actual events, mm. but because it was all out fiction, you could just get into it without worrying too much. Saying that, I do have a theory that 
historians and people interested in history can only ever truly enjoy fiction TV on a period that's not their own. And what I mean mm. by that is I love The Last Kingdom. I don't know anything about the Vikings. I know there's lots of discussion on Twitter, people saying it's so insanely wrong. The guy called Uhtred lived 200 years after and so on. But I don't know that, so I can enjoy it. I love Gladiator. Fantastic film. Brilliant. I know it's all nonsense, but I enjoy it. But, you know, give me a film about Richard III or Henry Tudor and my mind's gone. I, 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 I can't. I can't. Uh, you know, you're, you're looking at the at the mistakes that you know are there. So that's my theory. Hmm. You can enjoy historical fiction as an historian if it's not on your subject. Yeah, I think that's probably good because I cannot stand Scottish history stuff. Cannot stand it. Natalie will tell you, don't even start me on Braveheart. Outlocking. You're fine with outlocking. Outlocking. I am fine with with a different reason and I forget to look at the history. (laughs) (laughs) But do you know what? I think he has been the best American that has tried to do a Scottish accent because I can't deal with people doing Scottish accents. They do it wrong all the time and I don't know if you feel the same with anybody that does Welsh accents. They just don't seem to get it right. Had Edward's son of Henry VI, if he had survived, would Henry Tudor have been behind him, do you think? That's a very difficult one. Now, I don't personally believe that even though Margaret Beaufort got the promise of a pardon, I don't believe Henry Tudor would have come back anyway. He would have been too wise for that. He spent his entire childhood on the run. Mm. He's not just going to step back and believe that Edward IV is going to be okay with him. You know, he's traumatised by his time abroad. Next to him is his Uncle Jasper, who's going to be saying, you're not going anywhere, boy. So I don't believe Henry Tudor would have come back anyway. Now, if he had come back and Edward IV had lived on for five, six years and Edward V then becomes the rightful king, it's not like Henry Tudor is going to try and make a play for the throne because he has no cause anymore. His cause only existed by people believing the princes of the tower were dead and that Richard III had killed him. That was all Henry Tudor's cause ever was. So if he had come back, he would have just been another everyday noble in the land, no different to what we had seen over the previous 200 years. You know, just an interesting noble family called the Richmonds or whatever may or may not have been quite interesting 60, 70 years down the line for far different reasons than what they actually did become. Probably wouldn't ever be talking about them on the podcast. Uh, you know, there's so many noble families back then, the De Vere's, the Hollands, the Staffords. They would just become one of those. Hmm. A certain documentary that recently was aired, someone commented on the fact... Uh, Natalie, you probably had to tell me who it was. I can't remember who it was. But somebody commented on the fact that... And one of the... The examples they gave, the pretender had written he was Richard the King. And somebody said, well, you wouldn't have him writing anything else because he wouldn't pretend like that. If he wasn't the king, he wouldn't have wrote he was a king. I had an absolute aneurysm when she said that. An absolute aneurysm. And I think people don't realise how many pretenders there are in history. Such a usual thing. It's not unusual. It's every five minutes you've got another pretender from somewhere on some throne popping up. I mean, how many Russian pretenders was there? There was a million of them. 
after the, the Romanovs died. So I, I mean, even even in our own time, there's been people pretending to be Madeleine McCann. But there's even been an interview with someone recently where she told a story to the newspaper explaining why she did it. You know, how gruesome can you possibly be? You know, but but yeah, yeah. exactly. There are people all around who impersonate people and yeah. are not going to <laughs> go into a bank trying to impersonate someone to commit fraud. I'll be like, hi, I'm David Davis. But my <laughs> real name's Robert. But this. <laughs> It's exactly the same thing, yeah. The whole Richard of England, Richard of York thing is such a nonsense argument. I mean, yeah. the, the whole concept, the book is fantastic. The book should be read. It has much important information. The new sources, the new evidence are fantastic. It's the conclusions drawn that lets it all down. So it's flawed yeah. but valuable is what I would say. I mean, we already know that Perkin Warbeck was sending letters left, right and centre, calling himself Richard of England. I talk about them in my book, which came out three years ago. A lady called Diana Klein wrote a book called Richard of England with a picture of the signature on the front cover in 1991. So this wasn't some sort of magical revelation, and it is flawed for that exact reason. Well, of course he's going to say Richard of England. He's trying to tell people he's a bloody prince. Yeah. The Catholic thing, when they said that Richard couldn't possibly kill his nephews because he was a Catholic, and Catholics don't do that. <laughs> Excuse me, we do not. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, ridiculous. yeah. So ridiculous. We don't have a laugh about that. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like there's a very famous war in Northern Ireland between religious sides, both of which were committing uh, Frames left, left atrocities. Left. <laughs> uh, but, but, but furthermore, just on that point, it, it, this also melds into something that was said when they did that head of Richard back after they found his body. And, you know, people were saying that that's not the face of a murderer. Oh, yeah. And I, 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 I don't <laughs> What's know that? what that means. What's that? <laughs> yeah. I, Hashtag I true crime. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you know what, actually? I find that dead funny. Dead funny. Good one. Dead, fu- dead funny. <laughs> it's dead funny. So I'm not a historian. Uh, my qualification is in psychology and I learned about the history of psychology. And back in the day, that was a that was a, an excuse. You look like a murderer, so you must be like a murderer. We're in the 21st century, come on. Like, that's not a thing anymore. She has six toes, she must be a witch. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah, no, I, I think we're far more complex than that. One of my um, thoughts about it is... I don't care if he killed them or not, not in a bad way, but it doesn't make him any different to me because he's a medieval king. They did really shitty stuff. Like, they were not great people, to be, but they had to be. It doesn't make them any worse or any better, in my opinion. He was just doing what he had to do to survive in a time where that's what he had to do. Yeah, I mean, this is where... Every author, every historian needs to admit that they have modern biases. We're all shaped by our current worldview. That always needs to go sane. And I am someone who's very sceptical of the of the idea of monarchy, full stop. Mm. Uh, I'm probably on the side of being a, a Republican if you wanted to pin me down. Not that it matters in this country. It's not something worth pursuing. But at heart, that is my modern political feelings. So I do treat the whole concept with that innate bias, with a bit of scorn, really. I mean, this idea that there were good kings and bad kings and this king had more right and that king was didn't have any right. It's all just 
quite absurd when you have to look at them as just simple men and leaders trying to do the best for themselves. Now, men generally are rash, incompetent, driven. We're idiots. All modern leaders today are idiots. It doesn't really matter what side you're on. They are incompetent men doing things without any knowledge of their consequences of their actions. And that goes for all of them. There's obviously a lot worse than some. But they don't know what they're doing. They're just going from issue to issue, day to day, trying to make it through. There's no long-term plan or strategy going on here. These guys back then would have been exactly the same. Yeah. Richard III didn't have a clue what he was doing in the summer of 1483. He was jumping from problem to problem. And the same is with Henry VII, Edward IV, etc. They're just papering over the cracks as best as they can. And some of them were better at keeping support than others for various reasons. I, I suggest a lot of that probably just comes down to simple character. You know, Edward IV clearly was better at keeping support than Richard III was. Uh, Henry VII was able to keep support early doors, but soon on he then reverted to using finance to, to support and competence. You know, he was a competent king. People fall in line behind competent king, but it doesn't mean they didn't make ridiculous mistakes throughout his life. Uh, and, and, and yeah, so these are just men. They're not, they're not superheroes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're idiots. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, ambitious idiots, which is even worse. Yeah. So Henry's got the throne. And there's lots of rebellions, which we won't go into. But the two famous pretenders that come up, you have wrote a book about them. So the first one that comes along is Simnel. Where does he come from? As in, when did people know about this guy and who was he pretending to be? Oh, God, this is a big subject, isn't it? Um <laughs> I believe, I think, let's start there, first of all. I believe that in 1486, a group of people wanted to rebel against Henry Tudor. They tried in the name of Warwick. There was another prince in the tower at the time, Edward, the Earl of Warwick, who had a very good claim to the throne. This small group of rebels tried to raise a rebellion. They were chanting in the streets, Warwick. They were raising the Warwick banner, but they couldn't get any support. A couple of months later, word reaches Henry that there's another conspiracy taking place, and this time there is a small boy there, and they're saying that this boy is Warwick. Now, this time, the rebellion does get a bit more support, because suddenly you have a boy ahead of you to lead the army. If you tell people this boy is the real prince, there's going to be some idiots who are going to believe it. Mm. But what Henry does is he gets the real Warwick brings him out of the Tower of London and shows him off to his nobles. So obviously the nobles, they think, well, that boy's obviously a fake. There's the real Warwick. This is a lot of nonsense. So the small group of rebels take this boy and they go to Ireland. Now, Ireland was important during the 15th century for being a very Yorkist isle. And Warwick's father, George Duke of Clarence, was born in Dublin. So when this small group of rebels turn up and go, this boy's the real Earl of Warwick, the Irish just go, okay, let's go to war for you. You know, they've got no reason not to believe what they're being told. They crown the boy. One of the rebels is called John Dillapool, the Earl of Lincoln, who is himself a Yorkist prince. His auntie, Margaret of York, 
the sister Richard the third and Edward the fourth she gives them money and she gives them German mercenaries the they invade England it's a largely Irish and German army with a small group of English rebels they find very little to no support in England for this pretender and very quickly Henry VII knows based on what happens to Richard III what happens if you don't go straight towards people invading your kingdom he takes his royal army which has all the nobles join it they clearly think it's worth joining the two decide goes straight to Stokefield in uh, Nottinghamshire and destroy the rebels they take hold of the boy. Now, again, it's the official story, but it's a story that I believe is probably the true one. Henry interviews the boy and considers him to be an innocent youth who was not put up to this by himself and sends him away to work in the royal kitchens. He says that the boy's name is Lambert Simnel and he's a 10-year-old son of a joiner from Oxford. It's important that Henry doesn't have the boy killed mm. because, first of all, you don't kill children. That's, you know, a major sin. Um, and secondly, Henry had spent most of his life as a pawn. His childhood is a pawn. So I think he was quite sympathetic in this instance. Um, and Lambert Simnel lives out his days deep into the reign of Henry VIII. Henry VIII, of course, is someone who liked to kill people who he thought were rival Rivals yes. to himself. Never touched Lambert Simnel, who seems to live deep into his 50s. And I think that is very telling about who everyone thought Lambert Simnel was. Just a patsy put up by this conspiracy to pretend to be Warwick until they could get hold of the real Warwick. Just mm. plain devil's advocate. If they had thought it really was Edward Warwick... If he had not been in the tower and it was like a changeling or something else, would they have just let him live? And the fact that he is Margaret de la Pole, because she's, they were related, obviously, they were cousins with Elizabeth of York, do you think they would have just let him live if he just pretended to not be Warwick? Well, well I mean, if, if, the, if the real Warwick was at the forefront of this army, or the real Edward V, which is one of the latest theories that I mm. simply do not find credible at all. But if that was a real pretender, then Henry would have likely, I think, have done what he did with the real Warwick, which is just chuck them in the tower and then later have them executed, uh, yeah. which is what happens to the real Warwick down the line. Because you can't keep your rival threats alive for too long. I don't think Henry would have killed them as children, Mm. He's just seen what happens when people think what happens when you kill children. Yeah. But um certainly as as genuine threats, they have to be they have to be got rid of, which is what mm. Edward the Fourth had shown is what you do. Uh, which is another mark against why a later pretender Perkin Warbeck was not truly uh, a Yorkist prince. People always point out, well he had him hanged, therefore he must have been a real prince. Well, Henry granted Warbeck his life twice. Two times Warbeck played up, and two times Henry granted him his life before finally executing him, which in truth was tied up with having to have Warwick executed as well. If Warbeck was a real 
prince and everyone believed he was a real prince, he would have been taken out immediately. But again, the, the reason that this entire discussion is always quite frustrating because there's so many different counterparts. Every single thing can be can be issued a rebuttal and sometimes mm. you just have to end up starting every sentence with, I believe this, I don't know. <laughs> if we want to um, get some more back. So he claimed to be one of the princes in the tower. He said that he was sent into exile because they didn't want to kill him because he was a little boy. And he ends up in with Margaret of Burgundy. Would she have been able to recognise him? Because she was not in the country when he, the actual Richard of York was born. Uh, she only would have been possibly have crossed past him for a matter of weeks in mm-hmm. 1480. So she returned to England... Uh, I think for a wedding or, or something, for a couple of weeks, she may or may not have seen him then. We don't know whether she saw him. You know, the, the children in the nursery might have been staying somewhere else where Margaret stayed. But let's assume that she did see him. While he was still a young child there, you know, it's it's four or five years would have passed. You probably could recognise somebody, but there might be just enough of a doubt there to know for definite. What's really frustrating about this is that we're later told that Warbeck showed three marks on his body that proved that he was who he said he was. Now, that only works as credible evidence if we have other corroborating evidence that the real Richard of York had three marks. We don't know if he had three marks or not. Mm. There's no evidence that exists that says he has three marks. But apparently these three marks on Warbeck's body were used to convince people that he was the real deal. Which then leads me to wonder, if Margaret knew about these three marks and that convinced her, because she'd seen them in in 1480, including one oddly on his leg, then why didn't Perkin Warbeck get to London, drop his pants and show his marks to everybody? Because there would have been hundreds of men around, including his apparent sister, who would have mm. gone, oh, yeah, he's got the marks. So I think for Margaret of York, she is driven by her hatred of Henry Tudor during this time. And more importantly, she is a lady who is sadly quite isolated during this period. Her husband's dead. She has no children. Her stepdaughter, who she doted on, is dead. All three of her brothers are dead. Two of her nephews were allegedly murdered. So suddenly when people are turning up going, I'm your nephew, I think there's a reason why she's taken in by this. I don't know yeah. whether Margaret of York truly believed Perkin Warbeck or whether she was happy to go along with it just to see Henry Tudor destroyed. Was her long game always about Warwick, who was mm. her nephew and was still alive? I don't know, but I, I simply... I don't know for definite what Margaret of York's true feelings were, but she definitely had took in Warbeck immediately and was supported by that by her stepson-in-law, Maximilian, who had his own reasons for seeing Henry Tudor gone. Hmm. The problem with Warbeck is we're always told that he got all his support from abroad and they would only have supported him if he was truly a prince. But he only got support from people who had their own grievances with Henry Tudor. He initially goes to France 
France support him. They call him the, the rightful king of England. But they're at war with England. As soon as they come to an agreement with England, Tudor England, they chuck Warbeck out and they tell Henry he was always a fake. Then Warbeck goes to Burgundy. Obviously, Margaret of York has her own issues with Henry Tudor. He killed her brother. Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, supports him. But Maximilian is actually descended from the House of Lancaster himself and has a potential claim to the English throne. He's engaged in a deep economic war with England that's really hurting his profits. And he comes to an agreement with Warbeck that if Warbeck becomes king and dies without heirs, he names Maximilian his heir. So Maximilian is obviously conflicted straight away there. Warbeck goes to Scotland. James IV is a young king who wants to go to war with England to raise his profile. He's the same age as Warbeck. They become good friends. James IV gets his war with England. Warbeck runs away on the first day because he's scared. But James IV, nevertheless, carries on for another year and eventually gets a very good uh, peace treaty with Henry Tudor and then eventually a wife, a Tudor Mm. princess, works out well for him. And then Warbeck's last supporters are the Cornish people who three months before he turned up in Cornwall had lost a battle against Henry VII, the Battle of Blackheath. Uh, Yes, Warbeck does gain support from various European leaders, but put it all into the context. They are using him for their own ends, and they Mm. all use him very effectively. But, you know, again, we'll never know. Yeah, I always think, because I obviously see it from a Scottish point of view, but when he goes to James, they give him a wife, but it's a minor noble. It's not a princess that you would give a king of England the way they take a princess of England eventually for the king of Scotland. So I think there you notice that he was... I'll give you a wee one, just just in case, but I'm not really in. I'm not 100% in this. And it's not a cousin of James, as it's often said. It's a cousin by marriage. Yeah. Uh, the daughter of... I can't remember if I'm talking about Earl of Athol or yeah. some, somebody up towards the top, top <laughs> neck of the woods <laughs> in Scotland. Yeah, definitely. So did anybody take him seriously? I mean, I, I, w- I would argue no. Uh, obviously, again, you ask you ask a different different historian. They'll suggest that well, yes, obviously, all the people I've just listed took him seriously. <laughs> yeah. But I don't believe anyone took him seriously. What's interesting is that when he surfaces in Scotland, the French, who are now admitting to everyone that he was a fraud all along, I believe he was invented as a French pretender for their own ends. They sent an embassy to Scotland, telling the Scottish Parliament the boy was a fake. And the Scottish Parliament did not want James to support him, but James wanted to support him anyway because he wanted to go to war. What's interesting is that, what's very important is that the French had already made one King of England, and that was Henry Tudor. He was their original pretender. Mm. They wanted to do it again. I believe that's where the Perkin Warbeck conspiracy stems from. In France, after Henry becomes king, is a, a Yorkist rebel called John Taylor. And John Taylor is one of the rare people in England who refuses to accept Henry Tudor as king and leaves. And he's 
trying to whip up some support in France to try and take down Henry Tudor. He's a rich the third loyalist. And he writes the letter back to one of his supporters in Exeter during uh, 1489, something like that, John Hayes. And he says, watch out for next year. Someone's coming. And then lo and behold, in Cork Island, turns up Perkin Warbeck with two men, John Taylor and another guy called John Atwater. These are these are the two masterminds behind the Perkin Warbeck conspiracy. Once you get to a lower level, once you get past the whole Perkin Warbeck thing, or even the Lambert Simler thing, you start to come across all of the names of the smaller men who are involved in this. You see their motivations. Most of them are men who lost everything when Henry Tudor became king. And they're now trying to do something to get back their control. I personally find it very cut and dried, a lot of this pretenders and rivals. And I think people have overestimated this whole Tudor narrative and Tudor conspiracy and history written by the victors thing. They're looking for conspiracies that aren't necessarily there. Mm. It's fun, so. Yeah. And then... He's captured and he's executed. Why was the Earl of Warwick and Perkin executed in the end? There's two principal reasons here. One, there was evidence of a conspiracy to try and free Warwick from the Tower of London. Hmm. This conspiracy throughout Henry's reign never went away. He was always the true threat to Henry's security, a real Yorkist prince, the last legitimate male line Plantagenet. It never went away. And there was somebody, Thomas Astwood, leading these rebellions in the city of London to try and get Warwick out. Now, Henry had a good spy network and he knew about this. He let the conspiracy play out. But Warbeck got involved as well because he was in the Tower of London and he was also brought in to the conspiracy what happens is Henry lets the conspiracy play out but at the same time he's trying to negotiate a marriage treaty with the Spanish for his son Prince Arthur with Catherine of Aragon the Spanish have said straight up we are not giving you our daughter until your crown is secure it's it's an order get rid of Warwick and that's what happens Warwick is executed and so too is Warbeck they are condemned by this conspiracy, but Warwick is also condemned by his blood. Warbeck is just clearing up loose ends. Mm. Get rid of him as well. Um, what's important here to note is that the Spanish were apparently very fearful of the name Warwick, because Warwick's grandfather was Warwick the Kingmaker. Made kings, broke kings. So the Spanish were worried if they sent their daughter over, what would happen down the line? Very important, I think. Perkin Warbeck is hanged like a common traitor on the gallows. When he's given his final words, he admits he was not the son of Edward IV. Would he do that before he's about to meet his maker? I don't believe so. But he's hanged Hmm. like a common traitor. Warwick is beheaded like a noble on Tower Green. The way that Henry treated them both in death is again demonstrative of what he believed they were. One was a common thief, one was a prince of the blood. Henry paid for Warwick's own funeral out of his own money. I know that doesn't mean much after he's had his head chopped off, but it is still showing something 
very honouring the rights of the noble blood. I think that's very important. Yeah. I was thinking that too, because for him to say that when he's about to die, what are they going to do, kill him? <laughs> he's, yeah. I mean, he didn't need to say that. He really didn't. Not during, not during this religious age. He wouldn't have lied. I don't believe he would have lied. No. No. So Francis Bacon writes that he thought he was the son of Edward IV. Not the Duke of York, but an illegitimate one. Would Is that possible or do we know exactly who he was? I, I don't believe it's possible. I mean, never say never, but it, it's... If you are a illegitimate son of Edward the Fourth, then just say that. Mm. You still have the royal bloodline. Don't try and pretend to be something you aren't. That doesn't make much sense. That stretches credibility, really. Just say, I'm the illegitimate son. I'm going to try and um, become king. If you have the support, that doesn't matter. That's the whole yeah. point about this whole period. Right doesn't matter. It's might. That mm. is the true... Um, key to becoming king. I mean, Francis Bacon, I mean, that man wrote a lot of nonsense. He's, <laughs> he, he's the reason why Henry VII's image has suffered so much to this day. I think he wrote things like Henry VII used to have a monkey that ripped up all of his paperwork and Henry VII used to hang dogs. And Ricard didn't actually use Francis Bacon as their source for a lot of things they hate about, Richard III, about Henry VII. But Francis Bacon was writing in 1622 which is long after Shakespeare wrote um, wrote Richard III play. So why are we taking this as a solid source? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Francis Bacon has definitely been probably the most influential writer in shaping Henry VII. Reshaped him as quite a, a boring accountant king who was an administrative hero, but there were some weird little side things to him. Um, and probably one of the main reasons no one's liked the subject of Henry VII up until very recently when luckily historians are able to put a bit more of the real man back yeah. into, into play. Yeah. I think it's, is it Henry VII when, is it Warbeck or the, the first one? And he said, who are they going to put next on the throne? An ape? So, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact source, but I think it's something called the Book of Howth. Uh, which is an Irish source from about 100 years later. And uh, there was something about how uh, Henry tried to mock the Irish by saying that they would crown apes. And again, a lot of people seem to think that actually happened. It almost certainly didn't. It's a source from 100 years later telling a funny story. There's no <laughs> contemporary evidence that such a meeting took place where Henry courted all the Irish lords and made fun of them. Mm. Um, but the problem with, this, the problem with this whole subject is you can pick and choose what you're giving credibility to to fit your own narrative. Yeah. The Tudors get this. They get landed where... Uh, Chidders, we talk about Tudor propaganda and how great they were at spinning things and making up what some people say is their own narrative. How do we look at Tudor history and how do we know what's true and what's not, if that's the case? Just by cross-referencing a lot of the sources and using some clarity of mind, I mean, Tudor propaganda is so overused and overhyped. If Tudor propaganda was such a powerful thing, we wouldn't be all be sitting here, uh, you know, slagging off 
Henry the Seventh. You know, to the propaganda was so good. Then why the hell do we have the Richard the Third Society? Why have they been able to re- rehabilitate his subject, uh, his his reputation? We're often told a history is written by the victors, and that answers everything about this period. Well, we don't have any contemporary evidence that Richard III murdered the princes. That's a fact. We don't have anything from his lifetime that says he murdered them. We have rumours, but we don't have anything. Well, history was written by the victors. And between 1483 and 1485, the victor was Richard III. So I would say, of course, we don't have any proof that he murdered them because he wrote the history during his lifetime. Well, I've been a bit naughty there, but it just shows how stupid such phrases are. There's too much that we know about this period um, for simple catchphrases to just be a play. History written mm. by the victors or to propaganda. We have to go through all of the biases of each individual at a time. We have to try and put together as clear a picture as we can. And that brings us all the way back to one of the earlier points we made, which is there's so much we don't know about this point, but it's too easy just to write things off just because you don't agree with them. I mean, all the theory of propaganda is why we have such a good picture of Richard III. It was Polydor Virgil, the number one tour of propagandist, apparently, who told us how brave Richard was in dying in battle. Well, if Polydor Virgil is not a credible source, then why do we believe that point of view? Maybe everything he wrote was nonsense. It's, I think it's too cynical to just write everything off. The Tudors obviously tried to spin their own story of their greatness. So did the House of York. Yeah. There's plenty of Yorkist propaganda and Ricardian propaganda taking place. Uh, before Henry Tudor was becoming king, Richard was writing proclamations claiming that Henry's background was very poor and that he was supported by a bunch of rapists who were going to come and murder everybody. That's propaganda. Mm. You know, it's just it's just a tool, but it doesn't mean that everything during this period is written is incorrect. If that's the case, you may as well just pack up shop and not study any of history. You know, <laughs> yeah. w- w- what's the point if you're just going to say it's all propaganda? Well, people do the same today with newspapers. Regardless of what your political leanings are, let's take in the UK, the Daily Mail and the Guardian, two politically opposed newspapers who spin narratives to their own cause, it doesn't mean that what they're saying isn't true. Uh, yeah. Or the, you know... On the day that, on the day that, let's say today, I don't know, London and knife crime, uh, you'll have the Daily Mail who are, will kick up a fuss and then London's out of control, all these murders. You'll have the Guardian who will try and pinpoint lack of um, Tory funding, lack of government funding is leading to this epidemic. But the fact in the middle is still true. There was a murder today by knife. The rest of it is almost noise being whipped up to shape a narrative and that's no different back in the medieval day with different chronicles different accounts different ambassadors shaping their own experiences we've just got to try and use as many of of those sources as we can and just be aware of potential biases but we have to use mm. them otherwise there aren't any yeah. get done. <laughs> yeah, exactly and now let's ask nathan some questions about whales what Welsh mystery would you like solved? 
Oh God, I'm not even sure if there is a Welsh mystery. Um, <laughs> I've never thought about it before. Whether there really was a King Arthur, perhaps. Um, I suppose that's kind of vaguely connected to Wales. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe, let's, maybe let's go with that because I have nothing else. <laughs> what is your favourite Welsh castle? Uh, my local castle where I grew up, which is a castle called Carrickenen, and it's a ruin that's above uh, a cliff top, and it's very dramatic. Uh, sometimes if you go there in the morning, it's the mist and the fog is actually below the height of the castle, and it just looks like it appears out of nowhere. Uh, but definitely, yeah, Carrickenen. What is your favourite Welsh historical figure? Welsh historical figure? Uh I'm going to go with Owen Tudor, uh, the grandfather of Henry VII, this amazing Welsh squire who escaped his tough background to marry a queen, father some children, and was still fighting in the Wars of the Roses at the age of 60. Uh, he lost his head, which was not <laughs> a great way to end his life, but what, what, what a life he led. No. If people want to visit Wales and they're big Tudor fans, where should they go? They should buy my book Tudor Wales because I list 54 different places that they could go. If you're going in the summer, possibly Tembe, which is a typical British seaside resort, but it does have some good, yeah, some good ruins, some good medieval buildings, and you get to go on the beach. So covers all covers all angles. Yeah. So... Don't really need to ask this because you're Nathan, I mean, but where can people find you? <laughs> uh, literally by Googling my name, Nathan, I mean, uh, I'm on everything. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook under my name, but I have just started a Substack. So please go to my Substack, NathanAmin.substack. It's basically a newsletter. It's free. Bring your email address. I'm going to start, be, I'm going to start writing blogs again and my thoughts and I'm going to go that way. And you get my content directly to your inbox. And we don't have to worry about crazy, maniacal supervillains closing down social media sites and <laughs> all us authors losing our voice. Sounds good. What books do you have out? And what is you working on currently? What are we looking out for now that you've not spoke about it? We have uh, Tudor Wales. The House of Beaufort and Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, which are all out. Very good books. Read them, it please. Is. Read them, especially if you think that you're not going to agree with what I say, because they, they're not they're not provocative books. You know, I'm not saying Richard the Third is a is a murderer in them uh, and so on. They're, they're history books. They're just pitching the history of the period. So those books are out. And in July, the Son of Prophecy, which is essentially what we've talked about today, it's a 300 year history of the Welsh Tudor family. How did they get from a Ireland in North Wales to the crown, to the throne of England. It's that journey. Lots of Owen Tudor, lots of Jasper Tudor, and lots of Henry up to Bosworth. A great thank you to Nathan for coming on to the podcast today. And thank you listeners for tuning in to this episode of If It Ain't Baroque Podcast. Like, subscribe and share with your friends. Your support means a lot to us, truly. You can find us on social media with the handle If It Ain't Baroque Podcast or If It Ain't Baroque History. If you're in London, please join me on one of my walking tours, including the recently launched Royal Love Stories, where we see where these couples lived, loved, married and sometimes died. For more history fodder, please see ifitaintbaroque.art and reignoflondon.com. See you next time.